eyes up, don't get all tied up Hoping you wise up, the multiple lies of the multi-faceted, multi-complex system of living that people are living Stuck in inertia, that's a diversion, government worship, instead we are searching Ancient mysteries, ancient history, sacred energy, and how to discern it Human autonomy, truth of philosophy, UFOology, human psychopathy, super anomalies, human ecology You got the bottomies up in your consciousness, all the thoughts that we've been dancing around The system wants to blow your candle out, but we won't let it, we reject it with our pathetic vibe, so we chant it down Welcome back to Chan It Down. I'm your host, Loomis. ChanItDownRadio.com is the website we have here today. Episode 261. And this is part 17 of the Tell Lie Vision Visions series where we talk about mind manipulation through media and movies and all that. Today, we're taking a deep look into the Jason Bourne films. Last year, I actually did a similar thing. I covered James Bond films. Now, we're doing this with a guest, uh, an expert on film analysis and uh, dissecting the occult out of Hollywood films, Thomas Millery of PSYOP Cinema. Uh, check out their material and their podcasts. I recommend you rewatch these films before or after hearing this uh, so you can understand this better. However, if you've never seen the Jason Bourne films, you probably want to see them first and uh, to understand this fully. This whole mini-series is worth your listening, so go back and listen to the Tell Live Vision Vision series. Go to the series of shows page on Chant It Down Radio. You can go from 1 to 17 if you like. Uh, Share this out. Um, You know, this show gets bigger and better when we beat the algorithms so if you can share it out on any platform uh it helps and if you really get value out of it and like it a lot give it a five-star review i could use some help on itunes if they took down some of the reviews i don't know why but uh check it out and um this is a one-man show so you know i don't do a lot of promotion so all that kind of thing feeding the algorithms helps and if you want to really help out the show, well, I'm speaking of films, I am making my own documentary about our ancient past and going to the modern day. And uh, if you feel like you get value out of Chan It Down and you want to have an extra show, Afterthoughts, it's a couple dollars a month on Patreon. And that way you can help support the documentary at the same time as getting another show and all the money goes into the documentary so if you're interested head over to patreon 
Otherwise, just enjoy the show. This is a deep analysis of these films that have been out for a while, but what a lot of uh, programming and uh, interesting things we were able to find out of it. So check it out. Much love, you guys. Chant it down. Welcome back to Chan It Down. I'm your host, Loomis. This is Chan It Down. ChanItDownRadio.com is the website. Today's episode is 261. And this is actually the Tell Lie Vision Visions Part 17. And in this mini-series, I started back in 2015. We've talked about many things involving how entertainment invaded our homes and our minds and how the inception of television and movies were brought to us to control and manipulate and and mold our minds by culture creators and worldview shapers. When you turn a screen on and watch their material, you sip a little bit of poison each time. And today we're going to focus on the intelligence aspect of the world, the CIA, the MI6, Interpol, and other many others who are actually, if you didn't realize, are involved in our movie making, in our culture creation, in our media ma- manipulation, and largely behind the writing and rewriting of our news stories and definitely behind making a false flag events with fake events down to crisis actors. And we've explained that in great detail on this show over the years. The other aspect of intelligence that most people picture is behind the scenes is like coups of leadership in foreign countries, the espionage, et cetera. But who are these people they select for the jobs, whether it's regime changes, smuggling narcotics, or participating in mass shootings and false flag events? Who are these mysterious people? They are people who have been through major mind control and abandoned their own identity through abuse tactics, similar to satanic ritual abuse, and are the worst regarding all order followers doing the bidding for their masters that has to be without a doubt the most obvious treasons against humanity. I thought the best thing to do in this category is to do a deep analysis of the Jason Bourne films, which I've always felt were actually uh, feeding real insight into how some of this actually works. So I invited on an expert in film analysis that looks for the appropriate clues, nods, and meanings and winks in this film world that is none other than the PSYOP Cinema crew. Today, just half of the crew, Thomas Millery. Uh, him and his co-host, Brett, explore film from the politics perspective, demonstrating how the artistry of cinema combines with psychological and technological knowledge to engineer culture in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, making each of us the subject of the greatest mind control experiment in history. And I agree thoroughly and I enjoy their thorough work. So welcome to Chan It Down, Thomas. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be a great discussion. Obviously, you can't get more relevant to psyops and themes than the Bourne franchise. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I always uh, thought that these movies were, were re- released to give us an idea of what they are really doing to us. And as, as as their little, you know, karma game where they have to tell us what they're doing before they do it kind of thing. So I, I felt like, um, you know, it's time that these get exposed, even if they're old. I would assume that most of the audience that is tuning into this show are going to be people that have seen them. But let's just say you haven't, then maybe touch on them and then watch or then listen to this show, because then it will make a lot more sense. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, I guess let's start. Maybe we should just unravel a bit of the uh, background and production to this. Where, where do you think we should we should go right now, Thomas? 
Well, first, let me give my summarized analysis of what I think is going on with this franchise that I, I think a lot of what's happening here uh, is, is a limited hangout about CIA-sponsored mind control, and it's produced by a group of celebrities, people involved in filmmaking, who I think are all part of a very long-running tradition of how spooks like CIA agents love to uh, sponsor media about the CIA, and not just film. That goes back to a lot of novels and kind of the espionage paperback industry going back into the Cold War. It's a very, very uh, proud tradition for spies to sponsor media about spies. And um, and I think that within the Bourne franchise, a lot of what's happening here is depiction of mind control that is, I think, largely fetishizing and glamorizing mind control, particularly what uh, we can call Delta programming, which is like uh, super soldier combat espionage assassination programming. And I can say a little bit more in a moment about Delta programming as a subset of what we would talk about as uh, monarch mind control. Yeah, to fetishize that kind of Delta programming for film audiences. And it does, you do in these movies contain, you see a lot more open portrayals of CIA villainy than I think you would get um, in filmmaking nowadays, just because yeah. the political climate is very, very different. Where basically from 2015 onward, uh, you get this uh, the, the, this cultural coding of conspiracy theory of anti-CIA, anti-deep state stuff as it's it's undesirable. It's associated with uh, right-wing cranks and all of this. It becomes heavily, heavily stigmatized by mainstream media, by mainstream entertainment. That's not necessarily the case at all uh, in the in the 2000s when this is being made, when Hollywood celebrities. Uh, felt a lot more free to go after the deep state military industrial complex and all that kind of stuff because that stuff was coded as being associated with the Bush administration, which a lot of these um, these people in Hollywood, they, they really hated, obviously. So there's a lot of globalist infighting going on here, a lot of inside yeah. baseball that we're yeah. probably not privy to. But it is interesting how the Bourne movies do tell the truth um, about some of these aspects of these really evil operations from American intelligence, partly, as you were alluding to in your introduction, because of a revelation the method. Uh, they reveal these things in large part to establish a feedback loop between fiction and reality in the minds of the viewers. That's all part of programming audiences on a mass scale. The revelation of the method is part of the method, uh, as is something that Brett and I have talked about on Psy Cinema quite a bit. But then I do think that some of what's going on here is honest political critique back when there was some semblance of anti-imperialism in Hollywood. Uh, maybe the last gasp of that was during the Bush administration. That kind of goes away entirely when Obama gets in, in into the White House. So a few different things going on here, but mostly I think that what's happening here is a very um, is at is at best a limited hangout concerning the realities of trauma-based mind control. So I wanted to say that up front, and I'll circle back to some of those points as we get more into the films. But um, I also I think maybe we could say something now about the uh, about Delta programming, about kind of the history of super soldier-based mind control efforts. If you want to say anything there, or I can go more into that. Yeah, yeah. Be, well, you made a point um, that I I have thought about before about. I, I kind of put it into 2016, but maybe 2015 is a good time to where the political climate changed a lot and, and everything. Well, when Trump got in, um, everything conspiracy was, was painted with a broad brush brush and raked over to this pile of bad where before there was a different and movies have changed. And, and if you just look at the movies in general and the propaganda in them, uh, since 2016 and the woke ism and all of it, it, it really has changed a lot. Um, and 
movies really started sucking too, just on a viewer basis. Like, yeah, I mean, the, I, I look at movies different like you do too, as, as, mostly programming pieces but you know just as a good entertainment i mean if we were going to say movies dropped off some point i would say 2016 to now they've really they've really gone to shit but um yeah yeah i think yeah. that kind of when you have the great awakening in the early 2010s like around like 2014 you see a real a, a major sea change in hollywood where it's, it's the the toxicity just becomes so so much more blatant not just because of the social social messaging but because of just all the psyops kind of really really rise to the surface and then in 2020 for obvious reasons you kind of things get even worse so you know if people are going to watch movies which is fine like don't watch movies in the last four years probably don't watch them in the last 10 years like yeah. really you want to go even much older and even then you still have to be careful but yeah i think about 10 years ago just the quality of our propaganda the poison starts to taste a lot worse a lot yeah. worse about like 10 years ago yeah yeah and i have noticed one thing about uh, observing um uh propaganda in general is that it's easier to spot as time lapses on especially like you you can really see it and it really looks bad in hindsight like you go wow that's really terrible but um it's gonna look i i, I mean these times right now are gonna look really bad later if we you know can even uh, have any good movies that come out that look make these ones look even worse but yeah the programming in general whatever i mean you look at covid programming what they tried to coax to get everybody vaccinated now it looks even way worse than it did when it came out so yeah i've noticed that a lot but let, let's let's change gears a little bit and what you're going to say about delta programming i think that's a great place to start here before we kind of get into the films uh, themselves yeah yeah so that's kind of how i think about these movies that's what i was really looking for was that portrayal here so jason Bourne, thinking about him as a mind-controlled super soldier who's been uh traumatized heavily to the end of becoming this exceptionally skilled assassin type um and um less here it's, it's less about deception and more just about the, the combat and combat and assassination aspects of those kind of skills and how they're developed in these programs and so i mentioned the subset of a uh, monarch mind control called delta programming and so you just to review there we're, we're talking then about the most shadowy sinister advanced and mysterious successor program to to, to cia's uh M mk ultra and it's interesting how with even the discourse around these mind control programs that mk ultra itself has become one of the conspiracies that even the most normie of media outlets will use as their example of real conspiracies like it's right. maybe even encouraged for normies to like think about like oh yeah that's one of the real ones we're allowed to believe in that we're supposed to believe that um but then uh this is often in there in these rhetorical ploys and these fact-checking articles about conspiracy theories like oh yeah obviously this this and this but if you question the official narrative of any of these other things you're insane falling for what right-wing propaganda all, all those kind of things and it's interesting because even though mk ultra itself is in like the shallow end of that pool in terms of acceptable stuff um analysis of these successor programs is much more advanced forms of trauma-based mind control, those are among the most heavily stigmatized within the mainstream in terms of conspiracy theories, the existence of something um, of, of something like Project Monarch. But to get into some of the details of what talking about there, basically thinking about um, advanced mind control based on the creation of alters, of alternative personalities that are created and programmed by splitting the mind via the application of really extreme and horrific trauma and different alters being created to perform different functions and correspond to different types of programming. 
Uh, to quickly run down the list just for review, I'm sure many of your listeners know, but alpha programming, general baseline uh, for mind slaves, beta program having to do with sexuality, so seduction, prostitution, pornography, gamma programming um, being about advanced deception techniques and by some accounts involving explicit layers of, um, uh, of demonic activity, theta programming being about the development of psychical abilities, omega suicide programming, and then the relevant one to born is delta programming, which has to do with alters that are capable of uh, advanced combat, assassination techniques, espionage techniques. And so I want to make a distinction here so that Hollywood is very generally, as you as you all know, obsessed with the theme of mind control. And it shows up in so many movies, these themes, the symbolism, and part of the broad thesis of, um, of, of my show that I do with Brett Syop Cinema uh, is that the techniques from these mind control programs get laundered into the entertainment industry over time. And so what used to be high intensity individual trauma-based mind control becomes uh, kind, of, kind of spread out through the whole public in a more uh, in a more low intensity fashion to manipulate not individuals, but whole populations. And so we can think of like MK cinema or whatever you want to call it is just these broader depictions of mind control. And the Bourne movies fit into that category. They're not what Brett and I would refer to as monarch movies per se, which are these this very specific subset of films that have uh, this re this really intricate um, layered vocabulary, symbolic vocabulary that fetishizes the mind um, of the victim, right. the, and that that's often where you see all this common symbolism of the stuff related to the journey to another world, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, where you get the butterflies, the ballerinas, music boxes, red shoes, shattered glass, mirrors. Um, hourglasses, bird cages, all that kind of stuff. And so we get actually an interesting, a couple hints of that darker, more esoteric realm in the Bourne movies, particularly with the drowning imagery. We can, can come back to that when we get into yeah. some of the plot details. Um, but, and I, and I really do think that it's really one of the dirty secrets of the modern world, just how prevalent this trauma-based mind control is and how influential it is on pop culture and society. And so that's why I think about someone like Jason Bourne uh, as an action hero in terms of uh, of Delta programming, but also, I mean, it's, it's really worth saying that the creation of super soldiers as a goal for intelligence and military, that exists in far less esoteric context than something like like Project Monarch to bring us back to the realm of um, acknowledged by the mainstream for whatever that's worth. You can find plenty of documentation of DARPA's decades-long efforts to create advanced super soldiers, Right. Um, people like General Paul Gorman, uh, you know, openly talking about the creation of exo exoskeletons and outlandish-sounding things to create more advanced soldiers um, in service of the military. So, uh, and basically rewiring memories, rewiring beliefs to create uh, to create those kind of super soldiers. So that is not fanciful, not speculative, a very very real thing. And I think we have to look at um, look at the Bourne movies in the context of that well-established history. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, that's a great background to to run th run through before we begin, because uh, again, there's there are many different types of of movies, as you mentioned, different types of programming, and to identify it right up from the beginning is 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 really good. I I, I think that's awesome. Um, so what I got into a little bit, and I'll share this, and then we can kind of just go all over here. But um, the the original um material was written by uh uh robert ludlam and uh, his movies were his novels were written and greatly changed to fit the movies apparently but this guy was a u.s marine and an actor and so he he wrote these novels and then um i also wanted to say too uh 
I always say this on the show. And when we get into this kind of thing, I, I feel like Hollywood, high up military, CIA and Satanism all bleed together at certain levels. There's a certain level where all this kind of flows together. And so um, we're looking at the tactics here of, of uh, somewhat a satanic uh, ritual mind control, you know, like there's a form of it here in this kind of training. So uh, whether the, the novel writer had anything to do with that, I, I couldn't really find anything. Did you find anything more about Robert Ludlum? You know, um, so it's interesting. I did see in a um, in a couple essays from his nephew, Kenneth Kearns, I believe, that um, he said about Ludlum that uh, the Cold War provided a fruitful backdrop and Robert's insights into the world of spies and international intrigue won acclaim from serving agents. Indeed, three of his college roommates went on to become intelligence officers. Several of his best friends worked for MI6 and the CIA, and his wife Mary had ties to the Pentagon. Oh, wow. Some suspected that Robert himself might have been a spy. So that's just from some tabloidy article from the guy's nephew, but still, I mean, you can see the connections right there. And it's interesting, too, how this guy ends up basically turning out just like a couple dozen espionage paperbacks starting in his 40s after being a Marine and being involved in theater and some other things early in life. And then he starts writing these novels in this, uh, I think in the 70s and from 1980 to 90, does these few uh, born novels that uh, form the backdrop, even though they were heavily changed, like you mentioned, for the movies we're covering. And then there's a ton of sequels to the Born series written by other authors. But all that stuff combined with those remarks um, from the guy's nephew. Uh, the guy's nephew also wrote some interesting things about um, uh, Ludlum died in a house fire under apparently mysterious circumstances. There's some speculation that his wife might have killed him. It sounds like his nephew was a little bit undecided about what he thought was going on, but it sounded like that there's some pretty weird stuff there. But whenever I look at these kind of even like lowbrow espionage fiction, I mean, it just goes right back to the Cold War where, I mean, Alan Dulles, like, love James Bond and like by the 70s you just have this revolving door of spies and people who are writing about spies and CIA vetting so many of these things that multiple CIA directors have talked about they think that spy literature is a great way for the public to learn about this kind of stuff so ton of red flags back there so I'm gonna I also going to talk about a ton of red flags around the filmmakers but even going back to the novelist this whole thing glows so brightly Oh, wow. Yeah. See, I didn't know those that that nephew aspect. I didn't catch that one. That's cool. Um, that says a lot already right there uh, that uh, he was involved. Like he had some knowledge like people don't just like you and I could go through a roommate experience and nobody is going to be in the CIA, you know, it's, or or it, it's just very like to have that happen randomly is pretty weird, you know, so uh, that that shows he's got some deep involvement for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, especially when it's, when it's multiple people, it's not like he just randomly ran into like a guy in the street to work for the CIA, but when you have these multiple contacts in CIA and MI6 yeah. ends up into this career. Um, yeah. Certainly be very naive to see that as coincidental, particularly again with the well-established history of the CIA kind of like laundering their preferred portrayals of themselves through uh, through uh, through even trashy fiction, um, and uh, yeah, that continues on in terms of weird connections to some of the people behind the movies. If you want to start going through some of those names, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, Doug Lehman directed the first film, The Born Identity. Um, 
I just know that he directed a few other films, Swingers, A Go, which was like a wannabe Pulp Fiction and rave drug scene pushing movie. Uh, but I don't know if you have more dirt on this guy or not. Well, yeah, I mean, his, uh, his, it's interesting. His father was Arthur Lyman, who served as the chief counsel for the Senate's investigation to the Iran-Contra affair. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty deep involvement in U.S. politics. Uh, I mean, a pretty major scandal uh, right from right right from the get-go there. And in fact, apparently, some of the reworking of the novelist material into what uh, what Lyman and then the, the screenwriter Tony Gilroy, who um, is really involved with the franchise, ends up directing one of the later movies that we won't be talking about today, but you know, uh, but ends up um, uh, at least writing the first three as well. The way that Lyman and Gilroy kind of reworked the material to fit their preferred political messaging has to do, which is, again, some of it's ostensibly in a, in a very shallow sense, anti-CIA, but we can get into some of the ops of what's going on there, some of the limited hangout things and some of what might be genuine, um, but uh, but some of that is coming from this experience that Sky Lyman has of his father having been such a public figure uh, investigating and publicly speaking about um, the, the, this major scandal involving um, involving U.S. military and intelligence and apparently to the point of uh, saying that the uh, Conklin, the villain in the first movie, was partly modeled off after his father's description of Oliver North. So yeah. some some pretty deep in, inside baseball stuff going on there. But yeah, it's interesting that this was just Blimey's first blockbuster action movie. He had done a few, you know, like you mentioned, he had done a few comedies in the 90s. But just with his father um, being this kind of connected guy, I think that's I think it's pretty interesting because when you look at the rest of Lyman's career, uh, so like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, um, you know, another spy movie that uh, that doesn't even really have the pretense of some of this like critique of American intelligence, just the straight up normal Hollywood glamorizing of this kind of material. Uh, Sci-fi movies, Jumper, Edge of Tomorrow, Chaos Walking that have a lot of the kind of typically suspect themes and sci-fi themes to get from honestly most sci-fi um american made i haven't seen this one this tom cruise movie i should watch it uh about um about barry seal the, the pilot who flies missions for the cia and um and does all this drug smuggling stuff i have not seen it from what i've heard that is like classic limited hangout territory where it shows some of these um uh some of these uh more seedy actions from the CIA, but really, really stops uh, short of showing the full extent of all the stuff that the CIA is involved in, in, in terms of, um, uh, yeah, and in terms of all these operations. And uh, the CIA did provide at least um, uh, some production assistance to these movies, to the Bourne movies, in terms of just uh, at least establishing shots of Langley. So they're at least cooperating in that way, which, um, and so then the fact that Lyman goes on to continue to make movies about spies. I saw, um, I saw one quote from an actress who was, who was uh, working on a TV show that Lyman was producing and at the same time, Lyman was in the middle of um, making this movie Fair Game about the Valerie, uh, the Valerie Plame scandal. And she did. And um, and she says that she knew that Lyman had contacts down at Langley. So she asked him if he could get her, get her an introduction so she could go there and kind of take some notes on basically how to better portray CIA stuff. So it's apparently pretty well established that like Langley like has Lyman's phone number. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I was watching it. Like, oh, who who gives permission for a flyover of, of uh, the CIA headquarters? You know, it, it, like continual every movie we see like a, 
you know, like an air shot of that. Like you can't just go and get that without permission. I'm sure. I'm sure that's a no fly zone. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, that's very intentional. And so basically it seems like there's some kind of working relationship uh, go, the, going on there. And then uh, about Tony Gilroy, um, if you're right with moving on to him, since he's a pretty yeah, major figure yeah. as well. Yes. So that uh, he, um, he writes, uh, he writes most of um, most of the born identity think that the, there was um, another, it was, it was a rewrite. There was another script that ends up being mostly scrapped in this guy. Um, this guy Gilroy comes on there and he, I think, I think he he glows pretty hard as well because his his family members are kind of all involved in filmmaking. This isn't the reason that he glows; it's just some background. But his father, Frank Gilroy, was also a writer and director and producer of both uh, film and theater. Uh, Tony's brother, Dan Gilroy, is a screenwriter who ended up directing movies like uh, Nightcrawler and Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, Tony Gilroy's uh, other brother, John Gilroy, has edited a few of Tony's movies um, like Michael Clayton, uh, Duplicity, uh, Born Legacy, the this later one without uh, without Matt Damon in the in the franchise, and John Gilroy also edited uh, the extreme monarch trauma based mind control superhero movie Suicide Squad. Uh, so, but as far as Tony himself. Like I said, kind of with Mr. and Mrs. Smith from Doug Lyman with Gilroy, he just kind of does stuff that romanticizes and shows very neutered betrayals of the intelligence world with stuff like this movie Duplicity or this movie Beirut, the latter of which got a glowing review in a CIA journal about popular culture, by the way. Um, oh, and Gilroy also, as a screenwriter, did significant rewrites on The Devil's Advocate. Oh, the, I um, that, yeah. The, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, the supernatural horror drama with Keanu Reeves, and which has a lot of insinuations within it about um, elite Satanism and its connections, not uh, not just to um, not not just to this major law firm that's portrayed in the movie, but as you get hints of in in that movie, Devil's Advocate, to international operations, banking, money laundering, arms brokering. Um, the legal defense of child abusers, interestingly enough, is a big thing in that movie, Devil's Advocate. So Gilroy uh, writes that movie. So again, like I think a lot, a lot of uh, sus- uh, suspicious material going on there. But yeah, Gilroy ends up being the main writer for all three of these movies before directing one of the other later sequels. So yeah, so just between, uh, but then this is before even getting into Matt Damon, between, but between Gilroy and Lyman, you can kind of see where this material is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know, um, so much about him, but that makes, that makes some sense. And, um, Oh, it's my mic working. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so then, so before we get into Matt Damon, um, let's, uh, get into the second director who, who directed the born supremacy and born ultimatum, uh, Paul Greengrass. He's a British yeah, director. Yeah. And one thing that stuck out to me is he directed Flight 93, which is basically a brainwashed piece to uphold the official narrative of 9-11. And he co-authored the infamous book Spy Catcher, it's in 1987, with Peter Wright, former assistant director of MI5. And it continued enough sensitive information that British government made an unsuccessful attempt to ban it. In the mid-80s, the book was banned because of revealing insights into how the British Secret Service works. Uh, so already there, we have that time. I mean, you know, he's already got a background of looking at this stuff, but I'm sure you you have more 
Yeah, yeah. So the some of those same things jumped out at me. Uh, the fact that he directed United 93, like in between Supremacy and Ultimatum, he does this ultimate Normie 9-11 story, Let's Roll movie. Yeah. Um, and then and then he's kind of in the same mode as some of these other guys like Lyman, who this kind of like Bush era Hollywood lefty stuff, like even as late as 2010, so the tail end of when those kind of movies were still being made, he does The Green Zone, also starring Matt Damon, uh, which is this anti-Iraq war movie. So this kind of like left edge of normie acceptable opinion about um, about these matters, about U.S. intelligence, the military, what's really going on. All these things seem to be this guy's M.O. as well. But, yeah, the fact that he that was a journalist before he was a filmmaker and that he co-writes a book with the guy who was the for, like you said, I mean, the former assistant director of MI5 and um, and Peter Wright, in fact, was an associate of James Angleton is one of the most infamous spies in, in history. I mean, like it doesn't get more spooked up than that. And interesting, I think it's in, in that movie, The Good Shepherd. Matt Damon actually plays Angleton. So, you know, this stuff all just kind of like, you know, just like uh, all folds into itself constantly so yeah i think that um i think that that kind of says it all in terms of the fact that like i said no one's on this franchise who doesn't glow to some degree and it's before he even starts making movies that um that green grass is involved with a guy like right yeah yeah you're right and um then we get in uh into matt damon too and i don't really know a whole lot about him but um he's a harvard graduate and not that that's like a bad thing, but I, I feel like they do choose a lot of these people out of like Yale and Harvard and stuff. Um, so, uh, but I think you probably know more than me. I I've never really, I'll be honest, I've never liked Matt Damon in really anything just personally. He, he rubs me the wrong way, but in these movies, because maybe he doesn't talk as much, I don't mind him as much, but still, I just never liked that guy, but he always portrays uh, a military guy um, or CIA or, I didn't see that one you talked about. Was it green something rather? Uh, but uh, what, green, zone, you, yeah. green zone. Yeah. What else do you have on him? Yeah. So with Damon, it's fascinating how he, like you said, he's a Harvard grad, but one of his, um, the, the main parts of his public image is that he's like, just like this Boston everyman. Like that's a really, really big part of how he likes to portray himself. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of weird stuff going on with him as well. I mean, first uh, first off, starting with his very well-known association with this other Boston CIA bro, Ben Affleck, who directed right. Argo, of course, which is like the paradigmatic CIA propaganda movie, which was heavily CIA supported. And, you know, it's around that movie, Argo, that Damon's friend Affleck talked about. He wants to make Langley proud, did his joking, not joking comment about Hollywood being full of CIA agents, which is just obviously true. Right. Um, Affleck also plays a CIA agent in uh, the sum of all fears that 2002 movie, which was also had production support from the Department of Defense and of Defense and the CIA. Uh, Affleck's ex-wife Jennifer Garner filmed a recruitment video for the CIA in 2004. Oh wow! And uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you should look it up. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and her show Alias. Uh, she plays a CIA agent and a CIA spokesperson had glowing things, pun intended, uh, to say about that show and its depiction of the CIA. So that's Affleck, uh, super, super spooked up. And he and Damon, they come into fame together. They they have other movies in the 90s, but their breakout role um, roles are in Goodwill Hunting, which they write. And um, and that that popular, very popular movie in 97 uh, goes a long way to instantiating this kind of um 
this kind of Boston everyman image that that Damon has, uh, despite the fact that he is a Harvard grad and he ends up having some of these other connections. I mean, um, I, I think Goodwill Hunting is a terrible, terrible movie. And uh, there's this very funny uh, Louis C.K. bit about the movie, how it's just insane once you realize that um, Matt Damon wrote this role for himself, where it's like, yeah, you know, I'm working class and I drink beer and I get in fights all the time and, and I tell my <laughs> friends that's just who I am. But I'm also a genius and all the nerds who go to school, they're so mad because I know even more than the and it's it's so funny. It's just insane just how narcissistic of a movie it is. Um and uh there's also a scene in Goodwill Hunting where the NSA tries to recruit Matt Damon and um and then he responds, uh, his character responds in the movie with kind of a Again, these these kind of leftist talking points that were um, very critical of the, the of uh, basically the military corporations, all this environmental messaging and stuff like that. And it's a very self indulgent monologue, just like the whole movie is very self indulgent. But again, some of the stuff he's saying is um, is perfectly true. But it's just funny with that messaging because um, Affleck and then Matt Damon, the the exact day that. Goodwill Hunting gets its wide theatrical release. They're at Camp David with Bill Clinton, um, with globalist extraordinaire, murderer, Epstein buddy, Bill Clinton, and I think Harvey Weinstein's in the picture as well. You have this picture of Harvey Weinstein, President Bill Clinton, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck, like all together at Camp David, because apparently Bill Clinton was just so interested in this movie. And this was before Goodwill Hunting becomes like this breakout hit, or before these guys were anything approaching major, major celebrities. So it doesn't make any sense that they're there with, with, with those guys. But I just think that that kind of duality of the movie having like, yeah, like I'm this everyman blue collar leftist. Um, but then he's like he's hanging out with Bill Clinton to screen the movie uh, for its opening. It just really, really goes to show what's going on with kind of like a lot of these these guys who seem to be anti-establishment. And I do think they actually have these political convictions to some degree. But there's just so much about Damon's career, especially with all these CIA and military related roles that is just so hollow and so synthetic, I think. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And and I, I, I think that's why. Damon and Affleck both rubbed me the wrong way because of Goodwill Hunting, and I've I've never liked those actors ever. <laughs> yeah, but it is an interesting point. Just to go back a little bit about um, how the climate, political climate, has changed, and how distrusting the left was of military and all that with the Iraq War in 2003. And then these same people are the same people during COVID who are like, would never question the narrative and the news would never lie to them. And that the, you know, you'd be insane to question these things. Are you a right wing white supremacist? You know, like that's how quick it's changed. Just when we look at not that long ago, really like, I mean, yeah, it's getting to be a while ago, but really not that long ago. So we're, we're, we've, we've seen the left like change really quick um, and the right as well. And it's just kind of, it's just gone into absolute insanity. And I wonder sometimes if some of these leftists would ever go back to that viewpoint and go, Oh yeah, but I guess not. They're just too programmed. Right. Right. I mean, that's why there's some unfortunate things about that worldview that just leaves it very vulnerable to being psyoped. And because so much of this, there's so much globalism latent within that kind of anti-imperialist leftism that it's there they dislike all this stuff because they code it as being 
related to right-wing American nationalism, and the American empire is then bad if it's related to right-wing politics, to uh, to social conservatives, and to conservative Christianity in any ways. And of course, the American empire like is bad when it is related to these things, but these people basically are be totally fine with the dissolution of national sovereignty, with the instantiation of um, totalitarian globalism, if it's coded as left-wing, as progressive, all of these kind of things. That's why even though they're totally right about some of these aspects of the evils that the CIA has done or whatever, there's so much emphasis from these Hollywood celebrities on like the oil companies like that over and over again in these kind of like 2000s anti-Bush movies. It goes back to, well, the real corruption is coming from the oil company. And there's some truth to that, but it gets really, really inflated because they don't want to see just like how deep the globalist evil goes, how much of it impacts their own social values, how much of it impacts the sectors of culture that they are that that they are loyal and dedicated to so i mean certainly like again i think some of this is sincere but there's a reason basically that as soon as george bush gets out of office barack obama gets in there uh the 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 climate totally totally changes yeah it does it's it's amazing well let's move into the um the movies themselves i I just wanted to point out the timing and if you have anything else to share about the background go ahead i just but i just wanted to point out the timing this came out the born identity came out right after 9 11 like maybe maybe a year at the most but with with this big increase of security in the country everywhere not just country the world and cameras starting to be everywhere and surveillance being this this thing that's just up to such a high level. So I, I thought it was interesting, the timing of this movie right in that area. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, 2002 Identity comes out, and um, that's certainly one thing to zoom in on is the depiction of mass surveillance in the movie. We can think about what's going on there. Is it a limited hangout? Is it predictive? Uh, is it sincere? Uh, but definitely, definitely the timing is very... Um, is very important. There was actually um, there was actually some concerns from the studio that the movie right. might be a little bit less popular post 9/11. And then there was a uh, there was an ending that was filmed that was going to kind of soften the critique of the CIA, make it look a little bit less bad. But apparently, it just didn't really fit at all. So they um, they ended up not including that in the, the in the theatrical release. Um, so yeah, I guess. Uh, I could just do like just brief plot summary in the movie and then we can kind of like zoom in on some some sure, important sure. points. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. So, OK, yeah. so spoilers for everything. And again, a lot of what interests me about this franchise has to do with kind of this context that we've been talking about that because the movies themselves, they're they're very repetitive. They're not terrible, but they do seem very dated in some ways. Not the least, which is the fact that they all end with Moby, the same Moby song. Um, definitely. Oh, makes right. it feel Yeah. Yeah. The same extreme ways, I think, is the ending credits for all three of these movies. But um, and so a lot of it is just the mind control mystery stringing together a lot of chase scenes, some of which I think are very dull, some of which are honestly pretty cool. But anyway, so Born Identity 2002. Uh, so an amnesiac Jason Bourne is trying to piece together what's happened to him after he's been wounded by gunshots. Um, then nurse back to health after being fished out of the Mediterranean. And he's following these clues. And then he finds himself on the run throughout Europe with this uh, woman named Marie who helps him and then becomes his lover while the CIA is trying to kill him. And he's discovering all these incredible combat abilities that he has. And uh, toward the end of the movie, this very important scene is this confrontation. And I'm skipping over a lot because, again, some of the details are extraneous. So I'd be interested to hear whatever you pick out as important. But um, toward the end, we get this confrontation with Conklin, the CIA guy, who's heading this program, Treadstone, um, that had um, made Bourne into this super assassin. And it's 
It's revealed toward the end that Jason's conscience had perked up when he had been assigned to kill this exiled African leader who had been agitating against the CIA and talking about their operations in the African continent. But when it came time to pull the trigger, Jason for once couldn't do it because um, uh, because the politician's children were all around him. Uh, after his hesitation, he gets shot, uh, which, uh, from, from which followed his amnesia and everything else. Uh, but basically, end of the movie is Jason gets away and joins Marie in the secretive and pleasant location to start a new life until the next movie. And Conklin gets killed under the orders of a, a higher ranking CIA officer, a, a deputy director, I think, who ends up becoming the villain for the next movie. So that's kind of so broad. And there's a ton of shaky cam and punching and, and chases oh, all yeah. in between that. So I've got a few scenes I want to pick out as particularly important to the themes that we're discussing. But I'm, yeah, I'm curious what, what stands out to you? Well, a couple things like in the very beginning, um, they find a, a laser pointer embedded in his hip, uh, when, when he was found unconscious in the water and they fished him out. And it, and it does make me wonder what kind of agents, what these kind of agents would have embedded in their skin. Like, you know, like, and what it is, is it ends up being this, this, uh, this laser pointer that has the uh, bank of Switzerland uh, account number for him to go. And it's interesting, the bank of Switzerland, I kind of feel like that that would be um uh, a stable place probably to have an account for the CIA agents. But um, I, I thought that I, it just stuck out to me that, yeah, you know, um, the embedded under the skin kind of thing also was kind of being portrayed a lot too, even in the alternative media back then, Oh, the RFID chip is coming. And, you know, um, cause I, I was looking at stuff way back then too, like that, like, Oh, wow. Uh, but it's interesting to think that, you know, do these people have, like are they chipped or are they are they okay with having these things implanted in their skin you know yeah yeah that reminds me so that's interesting that that first like those first like five minutes including um the chip in the skin thing that that i think was all that remained in the movie i mentioned that gilroy uh wrote most of it um and i think that the only part of it that was retained from a script from this guy, um, William Blake Heron, who had been brought in to make the movie more action oriented, uh, was those first five minutes. And like, I think Gilroy even had like some kind of dismissive comment of like, I didn't write those first five minutes. Like, well, why was there something embedded in Jason Bourne's ass? That's weird. Um, or something dismissive along those lines, but just wanted to mention in terms of sus production credits. So this might be a coincidence because again, Heron ends up not really contributing too much to the final product. But before we go further into the movie, I just have to say that it's really weird how few ideas are floating around the film and television industry because one of Heron's previous writing credits was for uh, The Lazarus Man, which is this very short-lived Western in 1996 uh, television series about an amnesiac um, soldier after the American Civil War who's searching for his true identity with his own secret eventually having to do with like treason in the U.S. military and all this stuff. And then a couple decades later, Heron does another short-lived series, um, Agent X on TNT. This one he actually creates. He's not just a writer for about a super secret agent who secretly reports the vice president alone to handle the cases that are beyond the capabilities of the FBI, CIA, etc. So again, this guy barely even touches the final script of the movie, but even for a guy who writes that one key scene, it's just the same secret agents, amnesia, treason, all this kind of stuff throughout his whole career. So thought that was notable as well. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe, uh, yeah, further along there. So, Jason Bourne is goes to this this bank and um 
he has a handprint scan, which now doesn't shock anybody. But if you have to, if you think about back then, that was kind of a new thing. Like, and I think they were showing us this coming tech that's coming to us as for the commoner, like they already had it, but they, they were kind of like showing, I think that was actually throughout this whole franchise. They're showing us things that they actually have and they actually do. And that might be just one of them, that handprint scan. Cause back then that was like, Whoa, that, that's pretty futuristic. But now it's like, Oh yeah, well people do that all the time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that really sticks out to me here is uh, a scene when, uh, so Marie is this woman who is uh, at first innocently helping Jason because he pays her to for a ride to Paris and she doesn't know any of what's going on. But then after there's an attempt on their on their lives from the CIA, uh, both Jason and Marie are, are horrified to see this documentation that shows that basically the CIA has been instantaneously able to uncover every bit of info uh, on her life. And it's done very yeah. well, basically just like showing that like that they can find everything so quickly. And again, with, with some of the other dynamics that we've talked about, I think this is a mixture of a couple things. I think again, some of the people involved in the franchise, probably even Gilroy and Lyman to a certain extent are like trying to critique overreach of intelligence, but also the revelation, the method about the surveillance state has been a thing in Hollywood for the, at this point for a while. I, I mean, um, even it's something like that, uh, that Will Smith movie, Enemy of the State in the 90s, which has major 9-11 predictive programming, a lot of what's going on, and that movie is also, um, you know, is also supported by the U.S. government, is revelation of the method, basically, to disorient people in terms of showing these realities about surveillance. Yes, yes, it, they, they are doing that constantly um, it, with, with the, the technologies of the surveillance and, and how, um, too, you have... Like you were saying, um, when they look up basically what the girl uh, is doing, they they went back and like, show show me where she's lived the last five years. Now, back then, that wouldn't be so easy um, compared to now with Facebook and uh, all this. Well, let's call it log li life log, which the DARPA actually created anyway um, before Facebook. But yeah, I mean the things that they can they can do, and then um, how? Uh, let's see. I had on my notes something about. Uh, oh yeah, so the the CIA has access to all cameras. They can find you know all these different street cameras. Of course they have an override on every camera, including nowadays your phone camera. I'm sure of it. So it's just like, um, it's just kind of showing you, you know, their, their reach that they can do. And, and, um, another thing that, that did, uh, kind of, um, sort of, uh, alert me was that, that there is compartmentalized institutions within agencies such as the cia there's this treadstone project i was thinking treadstone what does that mean exactly i guess it could mean stepping stone like tread as in stepping and stone i i don't know but did you get any anything on that at all or uh treadstone no no i'm not really sure what they're going for there i don't know if there's some symbolic significance i'm not quite uh, not quite getting or if it just like sounded like a cool spy name right right yeah i didn't either but i was wondering yeah but it's interesting, and I'm sure the CIA has, like, and these agencies, the, they have normal people working for them that, that think they're doing a good job. And then there are compartments where there's more secretive groups, but, you know, just like any institution. But the, at the same time, they carefully handpick 
people to join an agency like this where, you know, the very best of order followers are. And I, I doubt if presented with dark information, these people would ever even be able to speak out or would ever do it because they know that they would be breaking their code and, and they're, you know, they, they handpick people like that. So to have a leak out of the CIA is pretty, pretty unlikely unless it's a, a controlled leak. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this would be something to talk about more with uh, with uh, supremacy and ultimatum in a moment. Yeah. But the the kind of CIA characters they present is fascinating because here you see some kind of conflict between uh, these two characters, Conklin and Abbott, who are both involved with Treadstone and um, and Abbott seem and Conklin's the main villain in this one. Uh, it's worth talking about some of his dialogue with Jason at the end of the movie, um, yeah. but he ends up being killed by Abbott basically because uh, Conklin is, is too much of a loose cannon. He's a liability. So you see in there some um, uh, interagency friction just based on tactics. Uh, then again, this is this is more about supremacy, but you have uh, you have Conklin characterized as a nut. You know, he's just kind of a lunatic doing crazy things. Abbott ends up being kind of a traitor or a criminal. And then with Ultimatum, it takes it further, where the Ultimatum does more firmly establish like a good CIA agent, a character that's established in supremacy than the other ones, but it really kind of takes it like all the way to the top. So, so, um, uh, so yeah, this um, uh, the, these different kinds of personas that we see here in terms of CIA agents. It's fascinating and important as well. I oh, one thing I want to mention in terms of a very early scene in identity uh, has to do with some well-known dialogue where Jason is describing his abilities. Um, so this is one oh, yeah. of his first scenes with Marie, and yeah. this I think is very important because this really goes to what I was talking about in terms of the fetishization of Delta programming. So the lines in particular that I'm thinking of is when he says, I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab or the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? So this is really important because this really showing that depiction is glamorous is glamorization. So even if it wasn't just an all outside, which it mostly is, it'd be very hard for them to show mind control like in this kind of action movie context without glamorizing it in a damaging way, because people aren't supposed to hear that dialogue. And then another hour and a half afterwards of Jason Bourne doing awesome action hero things and come away horrified by the realities of trauma-based mind control. No, it's supposed to make Delta programming look awesome. And I, yeah. what I think is really insidious there is how Jason's amnesia is supposed to contribute to that cool aspect of his combat skills. Because like, whoa, this guy's just a blank slate. He doesn't even know who he is, but he can still do all this cool stuff. Okay. So like I said... Some sincerity probably to this intended critique, but you can just you can see why Hollywood would not as an organ of propaganda uh, for the deep state wouldn't just be allowed, but encouraged to make these kind of movies because, yeah, you know, whatever kind of anti-imperialist sentiment is genuine here, what's going to really stick in people's minds. In fact, what did stick in, pe in people's minds, because the Bourne movies didn't inspire any kind of revolt against the illegal actions of the CIA, what stuck in people's minds is Matt Damon being a cool action star who can do cool things because right. of essentially MKUltra. Right. And that, that he's this like super soldier and he's so good. He can take down all these people and, and he, he's, 
this is how he thinks when he goes into a restaurant, he can, he can figure out, you know, all this, this detail. And then like, he's this awesome action star. And yeah, they, they're, they're putting out that, that someone like that is cool. And actually it probably in the end would probably make some kids watching this want to join the CIA, even though of all the bad stuff, like, like when we, when I was a kid and probably you too, they, they sold us on GI Joe, the action figures and stuff. And I was like, Oh wow, that's cool. Like army must be cool. Like I was thinking as a little kid, same kind of propaganda. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that some of the really darker aspects of the movie come out in in the end scene when Bourne is um, confronting Conklin, you see really some of the chilling mind control dynamics come out there. And it's, it's more subtle than this actually, I mean, again, these movies are, like I said, repetitive. So there's basically a more detailed version of the scene with the MK ultra doctor at the end of ultimatum. Yeah. Uh, But still just the way that the villain of the first movie, uh, even though Jason is obviously physically superior, could kill him is obviously in control. um, Like as an action hero is just so confidently yelling at Bourne. Uh, you know, you're a malfunctioning weapon. Uh, like, you know, yeah. you fail. Like, he starts, he basically starts dressing Bourne down for having failed his previous mission, despite everything else that's happening. He just immediately inserts, asserts his control as a handler, as a programmer, rather, over Bourne. And the way that the scene is edited with all the bright flashes and stuff like that, you really see these mind control dynamics coming to the fore. And so, just by yelling at Jason, reminding him, you're a weapon, I send you to disappear, you're nobody, asserting his lack of identity, that is the programmer reinstantiating the same trauma that broke down Jason's identity in the first place. And of course, you you, you, you get basically a positive outcome for the hero. Uh, you know, he doesn't kill Conklin or anything like that. He just leaves. He you know basically yeah. asserts that he's trying to leave everything. But with that kind of flashes and editing, like that is all part of the method. That's all part of low intensity MK Ultra being depicted in real time as part of these movies. Yeah, definitely. And I was going to go back and just brush on a detail here too. Um, that these assets, these people that they can like basically they can access assets who are normal people in appearance with normal jobs. And they all have, you know, multiple passports and currencies everywhere. I feel like that might be a real reveal right there of, of of what these people might kind of be look, you know, they've got people everywhere. And I've, and I've seen that being communicated in multiple movies, which makes me think there might be a bit of truth to that little aspect. What did you get anything out of that? Yeah. 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 I think that, yeah, I, I think that that's right. I think that just showing, yeah, uh, just just showing exactly what you're talking about in terms of these these different kind of people, how they get involved with which with agency operations, with the seamlessness of these people weaving in and out in society, is definitely part of the same normalization of intelligence culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that you just talked about a bit ago too, was um, how his, his commander uh, Conklin says these agents, he says in one line, he says, these agents are like behavioral software. He's basically saying that they are just programmed to do what they do. And just basically like, like a machine, like, and, and uh, he gets these headaches too, Jason Bourne. And then when he, when Jason kills this agent at the farmhouse a little later in the story, he has a talk with him and the guy asks Jason if he gets these headaches and headaches can be, uh, I, th- I would say maybe a form of being under that kind of, a uh, uh, 
mode of mind control possibly yeah yeah definitely and uh the idea of this um uh th this kind of like software model of the human mind is so important because so much of the mk ultra theory of how these people program humans goes back to cybernetic theory there's a lot of connections in the history of cybernetics that lead into uh into programs like mk ultra with the idea of the human mind as a programmable computer and that's part of why revelation of the method is so important why they depict these things because again it comes down to the idea that humans are controllable through feedback loops which is why it's not a mistake it's very intentional that they depict in movies the same things that they're that they're doing in real life so i think that that's important to note and yeah the headache thing is pretty chilling these like hints of like the real the, the deep physicality of the trauma that these people have gone through right yeah 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 this is like one of their one of the side effects of of this deep prom trauma and, and then when jason confronts conklin and asks him who he says he is and he says your government property you're a malfunctioning 30 million dollar weapon and and like you were saying he he says i send you to be invisible you don't exist and things like that and and i think people are like this who are complete government property uh, it it they're trying to tell us how it works i think and i wonder sometimes too like people that do some of these really nefarious things that in our world like chemtrail pilots you know are they government property did they undergo things like what you see here in the film you know yeah yeah i mean that's the, that's another thing to keep in mind with these movies is that it really i mean the delta programming i think is very very real as i've already talked about but it's also um it can be misleading to stick in people's minds that it's like this high level action hero stuff that involves this kind of deep programming um whereas like i said i think all of us would be horrified if we realize just how far this kind of advanced trauma-based mind control goes yeah yeah and i mean if there is even chemtrail pilots i've often thought that maybe maybe they're all automated but just and as an example of people that carry out some of the worst things like you know who would like for example who would spray their own population below uh probably more likely they get international people to do it but just that's it like these little these assets these people they 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 they're possibly people that they have are basically just government property and they pass to one agency to the other it's just quite possible it works that way yeah yeah definitely and um uh those are all my notes on identity if you want to move on to yeah let's move, let's move on to the next yeah that's all my notes too yep yep okay um yeah so again quick plot summary of this one and yeah we can dive into individual scenes the same way so villain in this one is ward abbott the cia section chief who had conklin killed the end of the first one and so uh, again spoilers for all of these but we find out partway through the movie that uh, that abbott is the one who's behind all the bad stuff and this one that he inspired with a russian oligarch uh, to steal $20 million uh, of CIA funds. And then a Russian politician was going to cover, or was going to reveal the perpetrators died with a cover story that it was a murder-suicide by his wife. Um, now in the present day, the CIA, uh, we get introduced to a sympathetic character, the deputy director, Pamela Landy. She's on the cusp of, of obtaining documents that's gonna reveal all this. Uh, when a deal goes wrong and the agents are killed who are involved and um, and it's Jason Bourne who is framed for this. So Jason is now in India with his lover Marie from the first movie. But then a Russian FSB agent named Kirill, played by Carl Urban, actually shows up and kills Marie in his attempt to kill Bourne. So Bourne gets back into action. 
More chases, punches, shit, lots, even more shaky cam. Paul Greengrass likes shaky cam even a lot more than Doug Lyman does. Um, yeah. And then yeah. eventually... Uh, Bourne exposes Abbott's crimes. Abbott kills himself in front of Landy. Bourne gets his revenge, killing Kirill in Russia. And then there's these two very important dramatic beats at the end of the movie. One being Bourne has now realized that as his first mission, he was the one who murdered this whistleblower Russian politician and the wife uh, who ended up being framed for it. So he goes to their now adult daughter and gives her a solemn apology, telling her that um, what really happened to her parents. And then in a phone call with Landy, I do like this is in the next movie, Ultimatum. I like how this ending scene is recontextualized. That's clever. But in an ending phone call with a good CIA agent, she tells him kind of as a consolation prize, his real name and uh, birthday and yeah. hometown. Moby plays once again. Jason does the thing, revealing that he's uh, somewhere people don't expect him to be during a phone call that some of these movies repeat too. But yeah, that's the that's the plot of this one. What stands out to you this time around? Well, yeah, yeah, and, th and that's good you brought that up because I didn't I'd seen these movies before, but I didn't realize that very end scene was actually taking place in the next film until I rewatched them recently. You're talking about where he's um, spying on Pam Landy from across the building in New York City. Uh, I was like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that they had recontextualized that scene. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, that that was done well. I thought with the, with the next one, when you find out, well, this is we'll talk about this with the next movie, but yeah. that she's giving him a secret code. It's not his real birthday; it's an address. Uh, just because, yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing to write home about, but it's a fine ending scene to supremacy, which I think is probably the most forgettable of the three of them. Uh, but yeah, seamlessly yeah. recontextualizing it is. Um, is, is is done pretty well. So, yeah, I have some thoughts on some of the opening stuff where his uh, love interest gets killed, but where where do you want to start? Well, yeah, I, I think it, the theme repeats itself here, too, where you have these real-life agents like this that don't belong to a sing single entity, but they're, like, hired for whoever, contracted out um, to whoever agency needs them. In, in this case, the Russian who hires the asset to kill Bourne, that this kind of thing um, sort of has repeated itself from the last film. Again, that these people are, like, these assets are kind of like, like ghosts where they don't have necessarily... They have a bunch of passports. They don't have uh, a particular place of living or country of existence. They just kind of go all over. And that's repeated in other movies, too. So I, I feel like when they're trying to repeat this message, there might be a bit of truth to that one. But that, that's I already made that point. But I just I got that again. Um, and just a little bit. And I'll, I'll go back to you. Uh, when Jason Bourne's passport is entered into the system, it then pings a CIA substation in London and while, while he's trying to enter Italy. And then it pops up on a screen and then an agent standing by forwards it to the main CIA office. I think that's exactly how it works with these kind of things. It just bounces all around till it goes to the appropriate department. And that's, you know, that that's another like I think a reveal on on how their system works. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just like the passport thing, the seamlessness of it all. It's that it's not any one person, one contact point. It's the it's the flow of information. Yeah. So it makes these intelligence agencies so nefarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I want to pick up on this scene pretty early on in the film. So it's when um, Marie and Jason are being pursued by the Russian assassin. And this, this I think, is what's important thematically here is that uh, Jason, while they're getting away, um, is that they're, they're in this car getting away, this car chase scene, and he's basically signaling to her 
that he's going to get out of the car, take out the assassin, and probably like take the fight back to Treadstone because he warns them at the end of the first movie, don't come after me, or I'll, you know, like he'll take the fight to their doorstep or whatever he says. And this all harkens to the film's tagline in the marketing, which is they should have left him alone. Um, and then his love interest is trying to dissuade him from this. Uh, she, uh, uh, she, uh, Born says to her, we don't have a choice. And she says, yes, you do. And then yes. she's almost immediately shot and killed right after that happens. So um, by the assassin is trying to kill Bourne, but he immediately kills kills her by mistake. So right after she says that, so it's an instantaneous vindication of Bourne's instinct that in fact he does have to fight back and take it all the way to, to the top and do all these things. So I guess the couple things there are like, one, I'm, I'm not saying that I think the movie should have had more hang wringing about, oh, he's wrong to fight back or anything like that. That would be, that would be pretty lame too. It's just that this framing really furthers the, like I said, the fetishization of Jason's abilities because the idea that the mind control victim can use his programming to fight back because Bourne is given such a clear cut moral and practical reason to do the things that, um, that that he's doing it does it's not like he even has a choice so therefore it's just kind of like his revenge quest using his assassination and espionage skills are almost just like a force of nature uh that are completely completely um uh justified in the audience's eyes because of that framing of the early scene and maybe even more interestingly this is an example of something you see in a lot of movies where it's the the death of a woman symbolizing the death of a soul um, and then you see that a lot uh, in uh, Christopher Nolan movies. He's a director who kind of goes back to that over and over again. Uh, but it's in a lot of action movies in general. James where and in this case, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's one too. But of Bourne being alienated from his humanity, from the idea of a normal life, being pushed back into this realm of violent espionage. Uh, because of having his love interest uh, killed in front of him. So, yeah, the, the the death of a woman is the death of his humanity that plunges him into this realm of superhuman combat, I think is very notable as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I see that as I see that in a lot of movies. They they do that. It's it's a good way to, like, get the audience to also just simply want revenge, you know? Yeah, exactly. But it has a deeper meaning behind it, for sure. For sure. Um I don't know if you had more on a little one scene that popped out on me is when the blonde girl from the first movie, Nikki Parsons Parsons. I don't know if that's anything to do with Jack Parsons, but it just came kind of uh, popped in my head. But she, anyway, she's being interrogated by other CIA agents about Treadstone, Pam Landy and a few other people. And she says, one of her jobs was to monitor the health of the agents. And she says their mental health, because of what they'd been through and they were prone to a variety of problems, depression, anger, compulsive behaviors, headaches, and sensitivity to light. And I, I would say that that was, um, you know, kind of like put it, I mean, these people would have to be pretty, um, you know, shut off from all that, but you are human. So some of this is going to, you know, surface again, uh, especially for the actions they're taking. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. It's similar to the headache thing that you pointed out with the previous movie. Yeah. Just showing the the effects, the damage that this has on people. I mean, again, yeah, the, 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 these movies are mostly, I think, somewhat shallow action depictions of the realities of trauma-based mind control, like I've said. But it's with hints like those that you can kind of see, um, kind of, yeah, kind of see the real horror of what's 
what's going on here but like in terms of like the the, the shallow portrayal of um of some of these topics i was thinking about i think it's abbott or it's one of the similar evil cia characters who says partway through the movie um about born come on guys we ran this guy's life with total control for all those years we should be a step ahead of him and that's in the context obviously of born being several steps ahead of them at all times he's outwitting them he's doing all this cool stuff and and so there with uh, the context of the hyper competent born uh basically getting one up on the ca guys who are pursuing him i mean it really is downplaying uh, the reality of what this stuff looks like because it's, it's it's so easy for a mind control victim in this depiction to turn it around on the perpetrators as if somebody who has been under this total control could simply use the results of that control just to fight back and if he's like cool enough a great enough action hero he'll just uh, he'll pretty easily beat the bad guys um so again these are not monarch movies per se this is more general mk cinema but yeah. something you get with those monarch movies very often is a final act where there's some kind of um, liberation for the mind slave uh, that in reality, what's functioning, what's going on is just a deeper dissociation. It's a power trip for the powerless. Um, it's just the ultimate enslavement in the guise of some kind of liberating defeat of the enemies. And that's not exactly what's going on here, but you can see a similar psychological function here with the idea that like uh, a Delta program mind slave being so easily able to get one over on his captors and programmers. Yes. Yes. And then Abbott, the, the, I guess the main bad guy in here, he says about Jason, his mind is, was broken. We broke it. And it's just like satanic ritual abuse. And again, I believe the CIA is part of, you know, Satanism at some level anyway. Um, this is, it, they broke his mind. He was broken. That's, that's basically what he's saying. And uh, another scene, uh, Nikki Parsons says, they don't make mistakes. They don't do random when, when they think that Jason actually made a mistake. And those are traits of a mind controlled agent, someone who's been through training to cut off the individually individual individuality and, and, and total and a total order follower, you know, someone, someone is basically just like a robot. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think that's what's going on there. Those are all my notes on supremacy. Do you have anything else in that one before ultimatum? No, it's funny. I don't either. <laughs> That was okay, probably good, my good, least good. that was my least favorite of the three, actually, too. I thought it was kind of like it's okay. It was kind of dull compared to the other two. Yeah, so, I agree. These movies kind of go back and forth between being somewhat compelling. Like it's hard not to smile at some like yeah, how well some of the action beats are done, but then when the chases and stuff like that gets old, they get really, really old. And, and, um, and plus there's the kind of like really washed out look for like a lot of the filming style. That's part of the kind of two thousands action stuff that I don't miss. Um, and is uh, not very compelling about these ones, but ultimatum I think is more interesting. It circles back to some of the same themes and underlines them in some ways that are maybe more sinister, but more helpful for our analytical purposes and um i think some of the intimations of some of the the commonalities with satanic and with uh ritual abuse and occult initiation come out more in this one but again just a quick plot summary so born is now trying to figure out who's behind treadstone and his successor program blackbriar and um there's a guardian journalist who's in touch with someone in the cia uh, who's about to blow the whistle jason gets in touch with the journalist but can't stop uh him from being killed the cia takes 
the new villain this time around is Noah Vossen, who's another CIA deputy director, and he's in charge of the Treadstone successor program, program Blackbriar. Uh, so some assistance from this character, Nikki, um, the Julia Stiles character that you've been talking about, who worked yeah. for the CIA in the previous movie. She's helping Bourne. In this one, there's some hints that they might have had a previous relationship. Um, Jason also tracks down the CIA whistleblower, but that guy also gets killed. But Bourne is able to find enough evidence to discover that the CIA is running Blackbriar out of New York. Jason goes there, and then there's that recontextualization that we talked about, where it's, we find out that Landy is giving Bourne coded information under the guise of telling him what his real birthday is. And he goes to this hospital following that address uh, where he meets this creepy MK Ultra psychologist called Albert Hirsch, who gives Jason a very similar spiel that Conklin did at the end of uh, All of Identity, but this time with a lot of more sinister added details that um, Jason volunteered for this program out of a missense misplaced sense of uh, patriotism, saving American lives, and all that, that after uh, sufficient disorientation being broken down, Jason was fully inducted into the program after agreeing on Hirsch's orders to kill uh, this unnamed, helpless, unarmed prisoner. Um, and uh, th again, the movies do the same kind of stuff repeatedly, so he spares Hirsch in the exact same way. He spared Conklin and spared Abbott in the other movies. Um, and then the dramatic beats here at the end are uh, Bourne is about to be killed by another assassin from Blackbriar. When Bourne repeats dialogue from the first movie that a dying Treadstone assassin said to him about, uh, look at us, look what they make you give. Um, yeah. Main villain Vossen shows up, shoots Bourne, he falls in the water. So it's a full circle thing from the first movie. Um, and I want to say more about that submersion and water imagery. Uh, but then there's a hopeful ending with a good CIA agent, Pamela, who's against all this corruption and what the CIA has become and the corruption of American values and all that, testifying publicly about uh, Blackbriar and Vossen and Hirsch get arrested. And interestingly, this is the all to the way to the top thing. You have Scott Glenn here as the CIA director, and it's intimated that even he's being implicated in all of this. And then Bourne, of course, survives. Last shot of this trilogy is him uh, not drowning, but swimming away in the water. So I have a lot to say about that ending. But yeah, what stands out to you about Ultimatum? All right. Well, let's see. Um, yeah, it, it all comes back to there's a lot of flashbacks for the movie of um, his name is Hirsch, right? The brainwashing mm -hmm. trainer. And, and he says, will you commit to this program? You hear it again and again. Will you commit to this program? And you hear it a lot through the movie. And um, I, th I thought, you know, I, I think of that like, you know, is like, you giving permission they always ask for your permission anyway with a lot of this stuff we do in society and it's, it's just one of those things uh you know he didn't have to but he did and um so he gave up his free will to this this agency and that stood out to me right right yeah the idea of complicity that um uh that elite cultural programmers really it's very very important for them to uh, whether genuinely or not, to at least create the impression in their program victims, whether individual, high intensity, or mass scale, low intensity, that you're signing on to all of this. It's like, hey, you know, you signed up for Treadstone. Hey, you bought the ticket to go see Born Ultimatum in the theater. Like, what do you want? You signed up for our program. It's all, it's all part of the same thing. It's all, it's, 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 it's initiatory logic. Yes, it is. It is. And at the beginning too, the journalist, Simon Ross, you know, getting CIA secrets and trying to publish it. I doubt that ever really happens unless it's allowed. I, I the CIA owns the media. So I, I find that that is like, you know, one of those really like um, propaganda uh, little 
slips in there as if, you know, the London Guardian would publish anything that they they wanted to about the CIA. You know, I don't think it works that way. No, no, certainly. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, the Guardian, I mean, it's obviously influenced by British intel. Like that's pretty well established. Yeah, so. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit of propaganda there. And then, so then the journalist, Simon Ross says project black briar on his cell phone. And again, we see this repeated theme through all three films where it's a key word. It pings the system and notice how they pick it up and it gets sent from substation to substation and, and until it gets to the right people at the CIA. And I, I bet, you know, that really does exist. Um, let's just say on the phone, you decided to say, I don't know, uh, bomb or something, then that goes to all these different things or, or, um, you know, mention of any alphabet soup agency or, or whatever chemtrails or, you know, any sort of thing, it probably pings up AI catches it. And then if someone wants to further investigate it, they will. I think that's really how it does work. I got that. I got that from, um, all three films really, but it, it illustrated it probably best in this film. Yeah. 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 Like a lot of these other elements, it's most underlined in the born ultimatum um, things that were maybe only hinted at in the first couple. It's fascinating though, how all this surveillance stuff is very real and it's very sinister. And like, maybe there's an inkling of something positive here in terms of like making people aware of these of these realities but it's also i thought with this movie one of the weaker aspects of it either intentionally psyopy or just maybe a little bit lame in terms of its critique has to do with this so blackbriar as a successor program to treadstone it's one of the ways that the trilogy is it tries to build momentum but instead just ends up recycling beats and so like the treadstone's the big thing in the first movie so it has to be something even bigger and scarier so it's blackbriar in these other ones um, but it really, it's not at all like the, the kind of, um, the, the, the intensification of the horror that you get, like from something from like MK ultra into the more advanced techniques of Monarch, or it's not a peek behind the curtain into the realities of uh, CIA's overlap with Satanism, the occult child abuse, any of these things. It's just basically like we had Treadstone and now we have super Treadstone. They're both just kind of generic black ops programs. Yeah. I mean, there's like, um, there, I mean, there's a, there's a line in there that it started out as a surveillance program and then now it's, um, involves renditions and assassinations and other kind of things but it's all the same kind of stuff that the franchise has been talking about from the beginning so we're again we're still in the shallow end of the pool in terms of what it's allowed what we're allowed to think of in the mainstream in terms of what the cia and related agencies get up to i i agree yeah totally because i i know that they're just they're just giving you little like hints and stuff but most most of them what i've um just in general like researched about CAA, most of what they do is really more so control of information and control of media and stuff rather than some actual agent on the, on the scene out there. I mean, I'm sure that I know they have that, but I, I think that's like 90% of their actions are actually, you know, behind media work and what, you know, movies and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Totally. I mean, they, these people are largely narcissists, right? So they're, uh, they're just as evil and probably in a lot of cases much more evil than they're portrayed as uh that they, they sign off on these portrayals as in the in the media but they're way less cool like none of these people are jason Bourne. like actually no you know like yeah responsible for all the death and mayhem but they're <laughs> but they're, they're 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 not action stars no 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 so what else did you get from this film i i mean i i got one thing that just kind of at the beginning there where he buys jason buys a prepaid phone 
And I bet you they do want to get rid of those in society, to be honest, because they want to, you know, we have control freaks behind our, our, you know, our um, governments. So they would probably want every phone to be assigned by a person. I I don't even, can you even buy those anymore? You know, I don't even know, but uh, it's, it was an interesting note. I took note of is the prepaid phone. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good catch. That's a good catch in the context of all these surveillance themes. I, Oh, in terms of the political messaging, it's even, it's, it's even more heavy handed than the other ones. I mean, like, which again, is not a bad thing. Just the fact that these movies are at least willing to like make some kind of a robust statement, however half-hearted it might be in some ways about, about what was going on in terms of these international illegal actions from intelligence agencies. But you really see like the, uh, the, the American flags, on the desks of the evil CIA guys while they're having evil CIA phone conversations. <laughs> like it's really, really like, I remember, uh, like I have a vague memory of like in 2007, like, uh, like on Fox news, Bill O'Reilly is getting furious about this movie because it's anti-American and stuff like that. So, you know, so, so again, you have the, the, the left-wing propaganda successfully ticking off the right-wing prop here, but like a lot more dialogue. about you know saving american lives so this is again very very bush era you know talking about these justifications about um you know we need to do torture we need to do the assassinations we need to do renditions because otherwise the terrorists will win they hate us for our freedom and again like this all goes out the window for these left-wing globalists as soon as you have someone else in the white house some other regime like ideological regime uh driving the driving the propagandistic car but as far as it goes like these critiques are valid and it's like there's there's something there's something to be said for the way that the movie calls out some of the evil that was going on in terms of the war on terror era intelligence actions but more more interestingly i think uh has to do with the kind of um some of the more explicit hints about uh the initiatory logic of these things like the fact that uh jason is jason Bourne essentially has to perform a human sacrifice to get inducted like he has to kill someone on command it's very ritualistic how that happens and uh just like in a cult context this murderous action is the is the breaking down of his own old humanity he has basically transgressed this moral limit so that he can attain power not as an occultist but as a spy in this case though there's a lot of uh, commonalities between the archetype of the spy and of the occultist i mean there's a reason that alistair crowley you know uh, walked in both of those worlds so seamlessly and yes. so many other people since him so that and then the fact that even though the uh, the death of Marie was in the previous movie, you have a lot of flashbacks here to after uh, that car chase and supremacy when she's shot and she's driving there, they go into the water. So again, the, the whole trilogy starts with Jason born in the water uh, supremacy. He basically has to let go of his dead lover as she's um, as the, after they've crashed into the water and uh, they, they go back to that scene multiple times here. So again, that's underlying the death of the soul stuff, but then also, so, uh, like I said, he gets shot and ends up in the water, but instead of being uh, uh, passed out and helpless like at the beginning, he swims away this time. So it's kind of that power trip for the powerless here because of our, mo- our, our Delta mind control slave. He's in this, uh, you know, he gets submerged, he's drowning again, and drowning has major occult significance. It comes up in a lot of mind control movies. Uh, this yeah. kind of floating imagery, weightlessness, is about this total control that uh, programmers have over their victims or even just the, the occult significance of water as an element, uh, basically the liquidation of a, a, a foundation
foundations of things that are solid, of solid aspects of humanity. Um, there's this kind of metaphysical significance to the element of water that you see in the occult, and that basically gets transferred into these mind control movies quite a bit. And so you have the water imagery in all three, but here it's really, really underlined. And so the fact that our action hero survives the drowning, he swims, he gets away, basically shows that um, I think it's hints of a greater dissociation that's taking place individually for the character of Jason Bourne and probably for the audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. You do see a lot of uh, water scenes where you have this person with the the hood over their head, the black hood over the head being pushed into the water later being the person that Jason shoots. Um, and there was this, um, this note I had about, uh, Oh, uh, again, Nikki Parsons, he's sitting down with her and they and she says they had to break down the agents before they were operational. So yeah, they, they breaking down the humanity within them. They had to break them down. They had to push them to that point and that alter in their, their mind to where they're no longer the person they were. And that initiation was the, the sh shooting of for Jason was the shooting of that unknown character in the black hood that was tortured. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The initiation, the drowning stuff, like the, the yeah, the fact that that, and again, just the way it's edited, you see hints of the, of, of the method of these, uh, these yeah. visual techniques that are meant to disorient the viewer and just kind of giving you a hint of what actually happens to on a uh, high intensity individual scale uh, to these mind control slaves. Yes, exactly. And yeah, you did hint um, in the last one. And I, I did pick this up too, how, him and that Nikki character she may have had a relationship. And she says, it was difficult for me with you. You don't remember anything. And she, as, and as if they were in a relationship, and I noticed she kept looking at him all the time, like hoping that she would remember or he would remember her, but uh, it's like he was stripped of those emotions. So it's almost like the movie showing that he doesn't really have, although he did get involved with that other girl, Marie, but it's like um, he was stripped of those emotions and he, in the process of his, of his transformation into Jason Bourne that he just doesn't even remember and he can't go there. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting thing. I noticed this time watching it around. Yeah, it's a great point. It's the alienation from the feminine. It's just like his other love interest is taking from him here. He's so broken down. His amnesia, his programming is so strong that he doesn't really even have, like, it's obvious that there's some kind of uh, the, the, this hint of a previous romantic relationship, but he can't go there. And, um, and even though he survives, there's no... Uh, there, uh, there, there's no idea here of him returning to a normal life or anything like that, which is um, somewhat different than, I mentioned Christopher Dolan earlier, so I guess briefly I'll say spoilers for The Dark Knight Rises, but there's something positive, even though there's a lot of very sappy things in those movies, is the idea there that uh, Bruce Wayne Batman returns to his humanity. Uh, he gives up the superhumanity and the dissociation with that, and then gets a normal life basically by embracing this love interest to character from that movie. Um, and there's kind of like the idea of the return to like a, something like a normal family life is the regaining of um, of humanity that can be lost during these dissociative techniques and there's no hint of that here jason Bourne is a blank slate who's fully alienated from the feminine and from normal family life and the possibility thereof definitely yeah yeah i saw that and then we when we get into um let's see i just have a few more notes i think but uh well at the end there we we have pamela landy and she's 
uh, sided with Bourne. And she says, this is not, it's not what I signed up for. This isn't us. And I think that's just more propaganda bullshit, you know, like, oh, that isn't the CIA. They're not really that bad. They, they, you know, some of them are good. It's like, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's just the whole, the whole way they put that in there is like, they're showing some of the bad things they do, but then they, they're covering it up with a little bit of like, this isn't us, you know, that's what I got from that. Yeah, totally. I think she's the real self-insert character for the perspective. I mean, I know Doug Lyman's only the first movie, but for the kind of perspective from someone like him, like Greengrass, like um, like Matt Damon, these people who are like obviously spooked up, uh, but they uh, but they're still uh, but they still want to have this kind of humanitarian message in there. The idea of someone like her, this character who is like uh, wants to a- appeal to American values, which again, if this movie was made nowadays, you wouldn't have any of this stuff about you know the, about basically reclaiming some kind of positive American identity that's being corrupted. Uh, that's also a little bit dated as well in terms of the political messaging, not necessarily in a bad way, but the idea of someone like her who's going to speak out. Positive publicly blow the whistle and, yeah. and um, you know, expose the bad CIA people. And presumably she's now, she'll become the, the good CIA person in charge. I think basically uh, they can, they're, they're totally fine with showing as much CIA evil as possible. They kind of write a blank check for themselves with that. As long as they have a character like her in there, cause that can justify for them. Well, I can, you know, like I can be on the phone with Langley getting directions, production notes for my movie and stuff like that, because surely like I'm the equivalent of like a Landy and not like a Hirsch or uh Conklin or one of these guys. Yeah. 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 They always have to show you that they're, they're still the heroes, but you know, um, sometimes they do bad things, but ultimately there's, they're still the heroes and we should believe in them. And you see that, you know, in there. And, and of course you said that about the, um, uh, um, the good American propaganda, you, you see the, what was his name? Hirsch saying, uh, or, or yeah, he said, uh, you're going to save American lives. And, and, and then at the end, um, Jason Bourne's like, you said you would do whatever it takes to save American lives. And, oh no, actually, no, it was Hirsch that said that you, you said what it would take, you would do whatever it takes to save American lives. And, and then, um, I think, I think what it is, is, is just, you know, they, they had to slip that in just like with the saving the CIA, you know, from totally looking bad. It's like they, they put it in there and it's part of his propaganda too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I think probably what Greengrass is getting at there, like it, it is part of his like mid two thousands like anti Bush critique. The idea that the saving American lives stuff like would have been the justification, of, you know, from uh, right wing propaganda at the time for so much of the global war on terror stuff like that. Um, and so he's trying to basically make his villains sound like his political opponents again, who are guilty of very very bad things. Um, but like at the same time as the, as the, the idea of like, well, you have the CIA doing all this terrible stuff in the name of saving American lives. Like we were just talking about, you have this character represents all this, surely the good that the CIA could do with a positive American identity and a reformist attitude and all this right. kind of stuff, even though like we've, we've covered these movies are barely scratching the surface of the kind of insane levels of sinister malevolence that these intelligence agencies are implicated in. Like the, 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 the a super soldier assassinations, like that's like that's step one and it goes a lot further oh yeah oh yeah definitely well did you have more that you wanted you you wanted to get into with uh the ending of it uh that was about it for my notes okay yeah um i know one thing that stuck out too is he said jason Bourne said um recalling in his flashback 
I'll be whoever you want me to be, sir. And I think that just shows that a lot of these people that do go into these programs like this, pretty much they do give up their identity. And then, of course, the Hearst says, uh, you're no longer David Webb. From now on, you'll be known as Jason Bourne. Welcome to the program after he does the initiation. And so that's just kind of like, um, and you see this a lot in, it, you, you see a lot of these double identities a lot in pop music and Hollywood, like um, Beyonce has another identity or two. And, uh, you know, all these, um, I can't think like right now, I, I always usually have a few more examples, but there's always like rappers with multiple names they have and characters that they have. It's like, that's all it's the same part of this, this sort of double identity and that identity that they were given through satanic ritual abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the monarch stuff, right? Yeah. Totally. It's the it's it's alters. It's uh, the trauma of of psychic splitting for sure. Like that's where a lot of the stuff comes from, and that's why, like, it's just so uh, explicit at this point. So many uh, so many pop and rock music videos are just nothing but monarch tropes over and over and over again. I mean, my goodness, look at some of the recent Taylor Swift stuff. It's it's pretty crazy um how much is there but uh, oh yeah and i guess uh, the, to go for the very lowest hanging fruits like jason Bourne is like intimations of that reborn rebirth new identity yeah it's worth stating as well yeah definitely yeah and and where this kind of individual though like just to kind of sum my summation or summing up of this is just that um this is i i think these movies were put out there to for one thing to show us what they're doing to us with surveillance, as well as telling us that these kind of Manchurian candidate super soldier types are those who they use in possibly some of these false flag shootings that we, we get um, a good example is the San Bernardino shootings that happened. Um, I don't know how long ago, and they blamed it on Muslim extremists, but civilians reported seeing men in black fatigue and black SUVs. So that was the leak before the official narrative. So they do use these kind of in real life, some of these characters that they Jason Bourne like people in, in um, you know, that's where they use them a lot of times is I think either in these events that they do or, you know, behind the scenes stuff that, that we don't see, but I believe that's part of it is, is that's where these people come into play. And sure enough, um, once we had 9-11, look how many uh, false flag shootings we had and, you know, different um, events that people like you and I and many people in this community have, have sifted through and obviously seen that it's a bullshit psyop. And um, yeah, so I, I think and then later on, too, I also look at the little as this is a little expose of how intelligence runs and this kind of connects to a little bit of how they even did that a little further with edward snowden when he came out and i see him as a control leak basically there to say to us that yeah we're spying on you through the use of this technology if you care and so again uh I, that's one of the the defining themes i've seen throughout all these films and is yeah we're, we're doing this to you but yeah i guess you don't care because we're going to do it anyway <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. So much of it is revelation of the method. 
Um, and, and so much of it is that is what I said at the outset: it's the fetishization of, of Delta programming. It's uh, it's it's the these people are not at all afraid to show all these dirty little secrets from the CIA because for one thing they have so much more that so there's limited hangout stuff going on here as well. And for another thing, they know what's going to stick in people's mind is the glamorous action hero portrayal of um uh, of this uh, of this kind of combat programming aspect of mind control of mind control programs like mk ultra and successor programs like monarch and uh, and so basically you have probably just maybe naive and well-meaning in some cases maybe overly malevolent people in, in some others but all these people these filmmakers these actors who are who are spooked up uh, but like have some of these earnest probably left-wing humanitarian beliefs and those basically and then those beliefs get channeled and packaged into this kind of revelation of the method limited hangout um fetishization portrayal of trauma-based mind control so there's it's uh, it, it is kind of quaint uh, to look back now and just kind of remember like the good old days when you could call out so uh, explicitly the evil of intelligence agencies in these kind of movies when you would at least have an effort towards you know, from the Hollywood left of uh, of U.S. military industrial complex of the CIA, etc. You don't have that anymore, but you can also see why that never led to any kind of real positive political change and why so many of the people involved with those efforts, even if there was something honest about it a glimmer of honesty there that before any of these movies started these people were already already basically plugged into these programs and why those political programs failed um to to avoid getting absorbed into the broader globalist program that picked up kind of after that 2000s era ended yeah yeah they yeah this is you'll never no longer see a movie like this i don't think and um funny enough you know like you know how people want to get into hollywood they you know the reason why you people have such a hard time getting into Hollywood is because it's controlled by these kind of people. And like every director and actor has these, these, these backgrounds that are not like you and I, and that's why people can't comment or people get into uh, these positions in Hollywood because they're, they're not, it's about, it's, it's, yeah, it's about who you're related to. It's also about who your family background is you know they're always like high military families not just hollywood um pop music um any any you know thing big in these in the music industry uh entertainment industry in general they're all connected to these agencies they're connected to high up military um uh, and and that's why most people can never get past a certain point they you know they could be an a-list actor and they still can't get into many roles unless they sell their soul some way there's that there's that line that we don't know where it is we we don't know exactly where how to get to it but there's a certain point where people either cross that line or they just can't get to that line because they are not part of these uh these these families these these uh backgrounds yeah yeah it goes right back to matt damon our star of these movies like i said uh writing goodwill hunting about like how he's an everyman who comes from nowhere and gets excelled just because he's a natural genius right and then even with that movie there's this weird synthetic thing where he for no reason is like uh is is watching that movie on its opening day with bill clinton and then um and then portraying a blank slate cia amnesiac like a few years later in the Bourne movies so matt damon kind of is what he's portraying here as this kind of this false version of this idea that you know the, the, this idea that he's this totally organic figure coming out uh, coming out of nowhere when like obviously there's some very very constructed aspects to his career just like of these movies in general yeah yeah 
Well, I, I think that's a pretty good uh, look at all these three films. And um, I think anybody listening should, you know, rewatch them and then listen to this and see what you come up with. Um, I, I appreciate you coming on Thomas and uh, where can people find your work and uh, what is the next projects, some of the projects you might be getting into this year. All right, let's see. So uh, patreon.com slash cinema for bonus content, uh, psyop-cinema.com, uh, at cinemasyop on Twitter. And uh, in, in terms of uh, in, in terms of future content, we're uh, just about to put out an episode on Taxi Driver that I think people are going to really find interesting. It has to do, it's going to be the conclusion of a lot of research on what we call the Joker cycle that we've been doing over the last year and a half now, really. Uh, we're going to start a series on Oliver Stone this spring. He's going to be our oh, next director okay. series. We're going to go film by film through a lot of his stuff. So that'll obviously be relevant and I hope interesting. And uh, before then, we might cover some more, uh, some more recent films like Oppenheimer and some other things that came out in the past year that we haven't covered yet on the show um, and some other movies that have been released from directors that we've covered like Zack Snyder and David Fincher uh, and then otherwise I'm, I'm also continuing the series on Terrence Malick that we're doing with our frequent collaborator Stephen DeLay so a few more episodes on that so a lot more Psyop Cinema stuff for people to look forward to if they're listening yeah cool and that's on any podcast player too like people can find you anywhere that way yep spotify uh, apple podcast all the usual okay great all right well thomas thanks for coming on to channel down i appreciate it and that's a great look at these these movies that you that are now it, um kind of irrelevant to what's going on but at the same time they're still relevant so it's it's awesome to be able to talk about this kind of stuff yeah thanks so much for having me on it's been a yeah. great talk There you have it. Jason Bourne wrapped up pretty nicely. Now, we didn't cover two of the films in the franchise, uh, and we may come back and visit those. We'll see, uh, either on this show or on their show. But the majority of it, I think, is in these first three films. And yeah, a lot of preemptive programming, a lot of revelation of the method, all that has been put in here. And it's... Um, those, the movies themselves were not too bad of movies. I mean, I, I enjoyed the action sequences in them. They did a pretty good job, but the shaky cam is kind of like a uh, frequency that you get in because it's just so choppy and crazy. and uh, It intensifies the action for sure. Uh, it was experimental, and then other people copied it, and it looked even worse, but they were at least the originators of the shaky cam. Uh, but it sort of puts you in a trance. It's kind of weird how that worked. Uh, but when looking back on it, it's kind of stupid at the same time. But all, the, all in all, the movies weren't too bad of movies. It's just that we are shown that, you know, uh, you can be a hero and work for these agencies. And I just kind of doubt that uh, under the orders of it all. And, and so, but it's worth, you know, watching these films again after you've heard what we said. Now, uh, thank you for supporting Chenet Down just by listening, spreading the word. But also, if you have uh, the extra ability to support Chenet Down through Patreon, it does help out with the funding of this unnamed documentary that I'm putting out about our ancient past connecting to present 
really just trying to give people a picture of the world that we live in. And it's coming along good. Getting some guests that I'm going to be putting on there as well. So uh, it'll be a work hopefully done by either June or September. We'll see about that this year. But much love, you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Chen It Down. Spread the word. Share the show. And uh, yeah, until we meet again, Chen It Down. Be a warrior, not a warrior. Chanted Down Radio's coming to you live from the Hawaiian Islands, coming from the perspective of complete freedom, coming from wisdom outside the system, and then some. This is the mouthpiece of the natural earth forgotten. At this point in time, humanity's been kept from the truth, so Chanted Down Radio offers the coordinates to a path out. You're searching for something whole, cause what you see real life. You're watching this world unfold, the truth in needs a lie. Rekindling what's been stole, the need to free one's mind. Uncover the truth exposed, so people see the light. Let's turn it down so we can know. It's simple, we just break it down a little bit so we can process all. Make the switch to elevate yourself to conscious mode. And it's beneficial, we can get this kind of growth and get the future. Generators want to stop the whole thing But the message still is ready, we can start a post Taking in the simulator and getting lots of numbers Waking up the possibility, try to stop hypnosis Shh.